Hello and welcome to this week's Ulster Rugby Roundup. A little bit of a surprise one because we didn't put anything out saying that we were going to be doing one this week and we also didn't get the chance to do one last week because of scheduling issues. This week will be a little bit of a shorter one as well because I'm away down to uh, the Irish Open tomorrow so uh, we are very conscious of editing time and trying to make sure we get this out before Ulster's European Cup draw which is being held on Tuesday, which is probably when you're going to be listening to this. Adam McKendry, back in the host seat once again, joined by my good friend and colleague, Jonathan Bradley. How are you? I'm good, Adam. I'm good. How are you? I'm not too bad. All the better for seeing you on the golf course for once. How did your first trip to Galgorm go? I'll say this about my first trip to Galgorm. I outdrove Gareth Hanna by numerous, numerous degrees. On the first hole. And that was the last time that I was and will ever be spoken about in the same sentence as better than Gareth Hanna when it comes to golf. Now, hold on, hold on. I've, I've got to ask folks. I know Gareth plays to quite a high standard and with the greatest of respect, you don't. <laughs> did he miss hit it off the tee or did you just hit one of these once in a lifetime golf shots? Combination of the both. Uh, combination of both. <laughs> He had not played for quite some time and it showed on the first hole, but uh, naturally he recovered to his usual standard thereafter. Whereas I also went to my usual standard thereafter, but uh, unfortunately that's in the other direction. I'm sure Gareth will be delighted to know that we are still talking about him on the podcast even after his departure, although he he might not be so delighted at the subject matter. Well, you know, I feel like long-term listeners will uh, want to be kept updated of Gareth and his progress. So, Gareth is doing great in his new role. He's absolutely killing it over in news, uh, which you can go and see on the Belfast Telegraph website. But yes, he is he is still about, we should mention. But he, uh, we'll, we'll try and get him back on the podcast at some point. But in the meantime, we do have some summer action to talk about in the rugby sphere. Uh, first off, I suppose we'll we'll take a very brief look back, mainly because Ulster weren't actually involved in it. But uh, congratulations to the DHL Stormers on becoming the inaugural United Rugby Championship champions. They beat the Vodacom Bulls, Marcel Casillas, Vodacom Bulls. Sorry, I, I must give them their full title uh, in the final in Cape Town. Close game, maybe not the the most classic of games, but a South African winner in the first year of the URC, I think we'll probably have had the organisers purring with delight. And the uh, party, by all accounts, still seems to be going on, so fair play to them for that. <laughs> which, play, which player was it? Was, stamina than I. Which player was it was giving, like, day-by-day updates of his, like, six-day bender after the final? <laughs> six-day celebration, let's be fair. Oh, no, I'm, I'm not even going to try and dress it up. Like, it was... Uh, we all know what that was. Was it B- Buthalese? Pepsi Buthalese? Or am I... I just appreciate the uh, the fact that while remaining in full kit, there was also a shower in full kit as well. So at least you know it was hygienic, more hygienic than it maybe seemed. He then went and met the mayor of Cape Town, still in his kit, still with a pint in his hand. Like I just enjoyed how you know once you win a trophy, it's kind of like all thoughts of dignity go out the window and it's like I'll go and meet the mayor and I'll just show up wearing what I was wearing four days ago I would say like 
Diamani will probably now be everybody's cult favorite player next year. So that is true. I'm, I'm desperate to interview him ahead of the new season. See if he <laughs> see if he's finally stopped celebrating and he's actually calmed down for the new season. Yeah, if we ever if we ever go back to in person uh, league launches, he should definitely be the Stormers representative. On a, on a serious note, I think it's good that a South African team won the URC in its first year. I think um, um, we've spoken about this so much after the start of, to the season that the teams had and everyone was wondering were they even going to be competitive, let alone potential winners for it to have been an all-South African final and for it to have been a South African winner, naturally, uh, I think was a good thing for the league just as a way of saying this is a, an experiment that can work at least competitively. There's so little hype for it in the Northern Hemisphere. And whenever you have 12 of your 16 teams in the Northern Hemisphere and you're getting very little traction because the final is all South African, that's something that might hold this competition back in future. Yeah, absolutely. I think we've probably talked about it before in relation to like Scottish teams or Welsh teams needing to sort of, you know, the league will be a success when somebody is sat in Dublin watching... Glasgow play Ospreys as an example it really did feel like everybody's attitude to it was just that uh, certainly in Ireland when Leinster and also went out it was like right well that's the club rugby season over and we'll see you again in two weeks whenever we start talking about the New Zealand tour and I think we even mentioned on the last podcast that it was going to be interesting to see the sort of traction that it got the sort of interest that it developed here and Outside the, uh, I suppose, the diehard and the committed, the answer really was not very much. What did you make of the hosting the final at the higher-seeded team? And I know we've had the discussion before about, you know, the the semifinals and the way they worked out, but are you more a fan of the neutral venue or are you happy with the higher-seeded team hosts the final? To be honest... I think that I quite like the destination final because there's a bit more sort of ability to plan. I think it takes an element of the home and away advantage out of it. Now, it obviously won't in the future if, say, they have a destination final in South Africa and one Northern Hemisphere and one Southern Hemisphere team makes it as an example, but I do think it worked and I think it obviously opened you up to bigger crowds as well as we saw for basically all of those destination finals after Ravenhill were all played in bigger stadiums than the vast majority of the clubs would have. Obviously, this didn't really apply uh, this time around because Cape Town Stadium is massive. Like It was a good crowd even at whatever percentage the capacity was, I think it was maybe 50% capacity or maybe just a touch more. But equally, I suppose you do want to have something to differentiate between coming first and second. Um, Because otherwise, if you have a breakaway top two, say, as an example, then what you're going to end up with is, if it doesn't matter, if seeding only matters to get you a home semi-final, then it's really only coming in the top two and you could end up a little bit like we have the Leinster this year where they actually had top seed wrapped up a week early, but still went on to beat Munster. If it was top two, you know, Leinster could have that wrapped up by the Six Nations in most years. I suppose you're still fighting for 
sort of your path through the finals as well, though, because you know you, you still want to sort of earn what is supposed to be your easier path into the final. Yeah, true, true. I think maybe this year could be proven to be an outlier in that regard because the seedings never, because it was so close, the seedings never really felt like, you know, oh, if you finish second, who you're going to be playing in the quarterfinal is going to be so much better than if you finish third, who you're going to be playing in the quarterfinal. I know obviously we did have a record uh, margin between one and eight, obviously, but um, I don't know. It's I think it's really important to remember and probably the reason why it's an interesting question is it's really important to remember how much of these kinks are probably going to be worked out year by year because we don't have an established pattern. There's no established formula even to look at cross-border, cross-continent competition of this length to even adopt for a blueprint. So there's an awful lot of things that still need to be worked out, even, I suppose, the very fact that... Uh, you do have this length of travel for a semi-final where you go and get beaten by all accounts. It ends up costing you a small fortune. So I'm sure there were certainly accountants uh, in Ravenhill that maybe thought that the team would have been better off having <laughs> losing the quarterfinal and having to uh, spend so much money to go and lose a semi-final. So I think these are all things that are going to be worked out and it probably will be a number of years before we have what's viewed as the ideal machinations and format for the tournament. Well, that is the book closed on the first URC season. As I said, congratulations, Stormers. They're the team to beat next season. Ulster will be coming for them. But before we get to that, plenty of rugby to get stuck into over the next few weeks, first of all. And that is, of course, Ireland's tour to New Zealand. Now, I'll give you the schedule very quickly here, just in case anybody's not aware. The three tests will be played over the next three Saturdays, starting with this week with the first test and the following two Saturdays for the other two games. But before we even get to those, the uh, Ireland start with a friendly against the Maori All Blacks on Wednesday. And then they have another game against the Maoris on Tuesday, the 12th of July, which comes between the second and the third tests. And um, before we actually start to talk about the the games against the All Blacks themselves, what do you make of the fact that Ireland aren't, aren't just going over and playing the All Blacks, they are playing the Maoris? Because this is sort of a, a new format. We, we've seen tours before where you, know, you might throw in a game against Fiji or a game against Tonga or something like that on the way across, or um, you might find a Barbarians game in there somewhere like England had. But to play the Maoris is kind of a new format that I don't think we've seen before, and unless you can remember one that has been played like this. No, I love it. It's got a real um, sort of old-school touring vibe to it, midweek games, like things that you just don't really see outside um, Lions tours anymore, and even like Lions tours are squeezed to, uh, within an inch of just being straight test series now, so... I really like it. I think it's massively beneficial in the year before World Cup as well because there's so many players in that squad of 40. I was counting today, like nearly half of those players have never been on an Ireland rugby tour. You know, there hasn't been one since 2018, really, since Australia because of COVID. So it's a great experience for those guys to go out 
and for a much higher percentage of them to get game time than would if it was just a straight test series, especially because Ireland's test team to me, obviously there's going to be injuries. There's already been one in the shape of Ronan Kelleher and then just the news today about Ian Henderson and Rob Herring as well as Mark Hansen having COVID. But like, if we were recording this podcast on Saturday, say, you would have been talking about we probably would have picked an Ireland team that would have had 15 of the same <laughs> names on it, which would have been very unusual because the side feels so settled coming off the Six Nations. So I think it's going to be great for other guys to get game time, and especially in that first Mari game to really press for an inclusion in the test games down the line. Like In general, I think it's quite sad that these summer tours of this ilk are coming to an end it seems if the Nations League format gets off the ground post-World Cup which by all indications it will so the fact that this could be Ireland's last ever tour to New Zealand of this kind the fact that it's not just a straight test series really uh, really appeals to me like we could be sat here in three weeks and Ireland could have lost five games and we'll be like "Ah, maybe they bit off more than they could chew there because it is obviously going to be properly competitive like those Mari games are going to be really really tough uh, tough games high quality opposition against an awful lot of new combinations that have trained together without playing together so how it goes in terms of the outcome still to be seen but the schedule going into it really looking forward to it looking forward to it all the summer rugby really I think there's I don't know if we can watch France against Japan. I think maybe it's not televised over here, but um, and I suppose you'd only get to watch the first half for the Ireland games anyway. But uh, in terms of the uh, Ireland, England, Scotland, Wales series, watching for those pretty much back to back, whether we break between the, the morning and afternoon sessions for three Saturdays in a row, all looks pretty good to me. Let's focus on Ireland first. Let's uh, <laughs> let's zero in on the uh, the tour that we do want to talk about, and then we'll expand it out a little bit to the others just before we finish. Ulster, obviously, having a, a decent representation in the squad. You did mention it there that Ian Henderson, Rob Herring have picked up knots. We don't know how serious those are. Ireland didn't specify how long they'll be out for, so they could be out for the whole tour. They could just be out for this Maori game on Wednesday, but. You look at some of the guys in the squad and we've talked about how they've been knocking on the door for a while. Tom O'Toole, James Hume, Mike Lowry, guys who we sort of feel like could be about to make their make their mark in the Ireland squad. Who are you expecting to be playing and who are you maybe thinking is actually more of an outside shot to get some game time in the All Blacks games? Because look, as, mu- as much as we're excited for the Maori games and getting to see Ireland play them I think realistically you're really only looking at the guys who play against the All Blacks as the ones who are getting the proper action you know yeah I mean I think the the Mario games will be good from a development point of view for those guys but if we're talking about the test 23 then I think Hume has to get a run at some point as a center in one of the three tests sorry as a starting center in one of the three tests like We've seen somewhat unconventionally Farrell name him as 23 in the Six Nations, but you know, that can you can end up playing anywhere in the back line if you're wearing 23. It's 
a quirk almost of Farrell's selection that he uh, does put straight centers in there. But I think I would just, for the way that he's played, I think he has to get a run at some stage over these three games in a starting center position. I would love to see him up against Goodhue. I think that's a that's a massive test for him in terms of where his development is because look he, he's played some great centers so far but I think Goodhue would probably be the best that he's played since he sort of made that jump into one of the best centers in Europe and that's kind of your sort of barometer of how much does this guy actually develop because I think Goodhue has probably been one of, if not the outstanding centre over the last sort of post-World Cup cycle. So that to me is, is a massive sort of step up if he can get that opportunity. Yeah, and I like we'll obviously have to see how those New Zealand centres come back after uh come back after COVID if they do come back in come back in quickly. Um because it's pretty much a state of flux you think behind those two guys. You know, we've got fair amount of new faces in that squad as well so but the other person I'd be really curious to see how this next three weeks pans out for is Tom O'Toole because obviously anyone that listens to the podcast knows I've been a massive fan of Marty Moore he had a brilliant season but I did think that whenever Tom O'Toole came into those games after Moore was ruled out for the season I think we all know he's a good player but I think it's fair to say the way that he held up into the examination of all areas of his game was a test that he passed with flying colours. And the fact of the matter remains that obviously, though, like to be honest, he's probably out of form at the minute. Tag Furlong remains far and away Ireland's first choice tight head, but there's maybe not a jersey in the 23 that's more up for grabs than the 18. Like, I think you can talk a lot about the backup to Johnny Sexton, who's the next Johnny Sexton. But I think Joey Carberry, if fit, has a much greater hold on that jersey than we could say for anyone at backup tight end. It's probably Finley Beelham at the minute, I suppose, obviously. And I think that is a position that's really there for, if you're looking at the Ulster players, really there for one of the Ulster players to claim. And I think it's a shame about uh, Rob Herring's injury because I think this could have been a tour as well for him to maybe remind people um, of what he can bring, certainly what he can bring in the set piece at a line out that obviously we know. Uh, you know, we, we saw Sam Whitelock in the uh, in the Super Rugby final. We know how tough the how tough the set piece is going to be. Could have been a big a big opportunity for him. So that is disappointing, and it wouldn't surprise me if we don't see that much of the other guys beyond the Mario games. To be honest. Yeah, I'm just I'm just looking through. Larry's maybe one who could maybe sneak his way in. Look, Keenan is nailed on in that fullback jersey, and I, I would be surprised if anybody other than him started that game. But purely for his versatility, you just wonder if Larry might do enough just to sneak onto the bench with that game changing ability. And I think he's. It's it's hard to overlook what he's done, but I think you know that kind of old saying of out of sight, out of mind. You kind of do forget a little bit just how good he has been this season because he wasn't involved in those big games at the end of the season. So I certainly think there is an argument for potentially having him on the bench. And 
look, potentially if, if you have him start one of the Mari games, I, I believe he's going to miss the first couple of weeks of the tour. But if if you give him a game in that second Mari's test, or sorry, the second Mari game, and then potentially he's in for the third test. But I I, I agree that it's going to be hard for him to break in whenever you look at the the talent that Ireland have in that back three, you know, obviously Earl's finished the season well for Munster. Hansen seems to be the up and coming guy. Once he comes back from COVID, I imagine they'll want him straight back in. Lowe has had a real resurgence on the wing as well. And Larmer has been going well for Leinster. You know, it's a, it, it is a tough one to break into, but at the same time, I think Larry does have that game changing ability. And one of the interesting things I would wonder is, would anybody ever try him on the wing? Well, that's actually exactly what I was going to say, because if you look at all those guys you listed, what do they have in common? Like, they've all played a bit of wing and fullback. Well, we've seen Earls play centre, but they've probably played more other positions than Larry has, so that would make them more suited to being number 23, because as much as we talk about Larry as being versatile in terms of being able to play 10 as well, like, we haven't seen him play 10 at, well, we haven't seen him play 10 for Ulster at a level that would be international standard 10. And so while Ulster may feel comfortable having him as an option to move into 10 so they can go without an out half on the bench, I don't see Ireland feeling that way yet until they see more of uh, him doing it at Ulster. Yeah, that, that idea about the wing is, in, is interesting because. You know, you talk about Hansen as a the left wing, but can't play fullback and has played centre as well in his time in Australia. You know, Earls gives you wing and has played centre in a pinch. Lowe could play fullback. Jimmy O'Brien, wing fullback. Somebody else that I'm forgetting. Larmer, winger fullback. So it's like, it's one of those rare occasions because you do think of Mike Laurie as having a skill set that's so adaptable that can translate to other positions, but it could actually be that other players' versatility just across the back three is what swings it in their favour. I just find it interesting. You've seen the likes of Freddie Stewart, to me, seems to be the the sort of champion for this at the moment of having made a name for himself at fullback, but then being shifted onto the wing back by England. And so far, the results haven't been fantastic but you know it's still been good you you just wonder if Ireland might consider it with Larry but I, I do agree this this maybe isn't the turn to try that but if, if they were thinking like maybe we want to get Larry in this team do you give him like a few runs during training and say be ready for this if, if we maybe need you but the All Blacks are certainly the team that you don't want to try that against. You know, if, if any team can pick out weaknesses in an opposition, then picking out a guy who's playing wing for the first time on the international stage is something that they would definitely try and exploit. The only thing I'll say about the O'Toole argument to go back to that is that they've put so much time into bringing him into the squad. And he's had to bide his time. He's been in a few squads where he's probably been told we're only bringing you down for experience. We're, you know, we're not going to play you unless there's injuries to guys ahead of you, but we see you as our guy of the future. At some point, you have to put him in the team. At some point, you have to start saying, we're not going to back you as our tight head of the future. And I think after the finish of the season he had, he was superb in those two games 
against Munster and against the Stormers. If you're coming into a tour off that kind of form, when else are you going to give him a shot? Like, Bielham hasn't played since mid-May, and that's not his fault. But you've got a guy who's been sitting there who hasn't been playing the lights out for his province and is coming into this off the back of maybe a, m- a month and a half where he hasn't had a competitive game. And you've got a guy who played two brilliant knockout rugby matches. I think at some point you've got to say you deserve your shot here, and I, I think it is now. Yeah, I'd agree. That's why, you know, I do just think that there could be a big three weeks ahead for him. And um, as I say, there has been that time investment in him. He's obviously an athlete of the profile that they're looking to move towards and that they think that the game is moving towards in terms of front row. So no better test either than uh, than going to New Zealand. So I think he'll be grateful if he's asked not to play 80 minutes, though. I think he might be done with that. News coming out this morning, this is Monday, that we're recording on that Joe Schmidt has linked up with the All Black squad because head coach Ian Foster has tested positive for COVID. What do you make of Schmidt being involved with the All Blacks, especially coming into a tour against Ireland? Well, it's fascinating on a number of levels because by all accounts, Ian Foster was sort of pushing to get Schmidt involved anyway. Uh, We know that he was going to become involved as a selector after this series regardless. But there was sort of a school of thought that similar to his what was supposed to be a very hands-off rule with the Blues that essentially once he got near the place, there was a feeling that maybe he just wouldn't be able to help himself and he would get more involved in the coaching side of things. And the point of it that is interesting to me from a New Zealand perspective is it's sort of feels like somebody bringing in their own replacement, which is um, never an overly wise thing to do. Like, What's yeah. the phrase they use, lame duck? Yeah, like there was obviously, I suppose, by virtue of, I suppose not dissimilar to what Andy Farrell experienced coming in um, to follow Schmidt, there was a sense of, you know, promoting an assistant from within at a time when the World Cup had gone badly. So there was a case to be made for change when you saw the names that were being linked, whether that be Scott Robertson, Jamie Joseph, Tony Brown, there was probably a a greater groundswell of popular opinion in New Zealand for any of those guys in tickets of various shapes to take the All Blacks forward. And then while they obviously COVID disrupted so much of what's gone on since, like they had a good rugby championship last year and followed that up with losing to both Ireland and France in a relatively convincing fashion when last we saw them. So I think quietly there's a fair or there was a fair amount of heat on Foster coming into this tour. Now it looks as if he's going to be absent for the first test and you have one of the great modern international rugby coaches (laughs) already there taking the team like it's from a purely personal for foster perspective it seems like a recipe for disaster but as i said by all accounts the two guys the two men get on well and um it was foster that was sort of pressing for this to get schmidt 
into the camp in some capacity whenever we heard it was going to be as a selector and analyst, I believe was the uh, the official the official title. But I mean, in terms of being against Ireland, like, you know, people will talk about it. And again, the fact that there has been that continuity with Farrell and with Easterby having worked together for so long. But like, it's been three years and I think there's been such a turnover of players that I don't know if it's basically like, you know, I don't know if this Schmidt coming in is something where Ireland are going to be sitting back and saying, oh, he knows all the family secrets. He's uh, going to be able to spot our moves a mile off. Because, I mean, teams are so analysed nowadays anyway. Like, And especially with Ireland being so heavily drawn from Leinster, you have so many games, whether they be big Ireland games or big Leinster games, to try and work out what Ireland are going to do. Like, Three years, such turnover of players. I'm just not sure if it's something where that familiarity is going to be overly telling. I'm just saying why people are going to make a big deal about it. <laughs> it's a good story. <laughs> no, I, I get why people are going to be making a big deal out of it as well. I'm, I'm just interested what he's actually going to do whenever he's in the squad. Like, is he being brought in with the specific instructions of follow what we've already been doing for me and Foster? Or has he been brought in with the emphasis on trying give us something a little bit more like come in and look at what we're doing and try and change something up because it's a really interesting dynamic for a head coach having to cede power to someone else and Ian Foster hasn't really given an indication of like is he going to be in like constant phone contact with him 24 7 and saying have you done this have you done that or is he kind of you know leading or leaving it for Schmidt to do as he sees fit because he trusts him to do the coaching well enough. So th- from that perspective, I think there's a really interesting power dynamic because I, as you say, New Zealand rugby is not in this all powerful position that it has been in the past. There's that little bit of an aura of invincibility of the All Blacks that has been lost in recent years, specifically after the, those results from, uh, from Ireland and France. And I think even how England took them apart in the World Cup, I think still kind of sits with people, and I know that wasn't under Foster's remit, but you know, it, it kind of still sort of hangs over him, even yeah, though yeah, it, he's still associated with it. Yeah, exactly. So I, I, I'm just really intrigued to see, you know, is Schmidt coming in specifically to coach the team, or is he coming in just to essentially fill in for what Foster would have been doing anyway? And even from that perspective, if he is just coming to fill in. Surely you've got someone who is already within your system who hasn't been hit by COVID because I know his assistants are down with COVID as well. But surely there's somebody already in the setup who you could entrust with your instructions and say, look, we just need you to run through these things while we're away. But I'm still going to be chatting to you anyway and things like that. Why do you feel the need to bring in someone like Schmidt? Yeah, because I suppose you're really probably talking two pitch sessions Tuesday, Thursday. And... You know, you've got an eight-strong coaching team, admittedly, with uh, Plumtree and McLeod having um, caught COVID as well. <laughs> there could be a worry that other guys are going to test positive during the week, I suppose, if they've all been in meetings together. But it's a fascinating dynamic. Like We have a not dissimilar thing in Ireland with Leo Cullen and Sherry Lancaster, but I think it takes two complementary 
characters to make that work. Basically, to have two head coaches on the same ticket. And we've probably seen even in instances where an assistant coach hasn't been a head coach, but thinks that they should be a head coach and how difficult that that can be, let alone having two guys who will both see themselves as test head coaches. So that power dynamic is going to be interesting moving forward. And kind of like you say, like how much of an influence or how much of an agent of change can Joe Smith be in the course of a week anyway? But like, let's say for the sake of arguments that with Foster's tactics, Foster's blueprint and Foster's prior (laughs) two weeks of coaching plus selection, let's say for the sake of argument that Joe Schmidt's New Zealand goes out and hammers Ireland in the first test and then Ireland win the second test. Like that's, that would be a sight to behold in the, the New Zealand press, I think. What what do you make of this all black squad? We were saying there how they're not sort of the fearsome all black squad of the past, but where where do you sort of see this team at the moment? I just think it's in transition. Like there's so many partnerships that we don't know, and then I think as well there's an element of how much are they just trying to get the train back on the tracks. You know, when you see guys that are not going to make the World Cup, whether it be through moves abroad or what what have you, when you see guys that aren't going to be in the in the World Cup being selected for this tour, it's an interesting policy for a side that we always look to as having greater depth than anybody else. The COVID issues that have hit the camp are not going to help, especially in that midfield that we talked about earlier. Like we're we're leaning we're leaning quite close to them having to play Roger Tuivasa-Shek, and and his debut. And look, I know he's had a great season for the Blues, but you think about who they could run out in terms of a in terms of a centre pairing. You're probably looking at Goodhue and Rico Iwani. I don't know if who else they would have in the centre ahead of those two, but you know you, you think about what they could have and what they're potentially having to put out. It's it's a big gap. Yeah, and it, like, I don't know how you feel, but it just sort of, it strikes me as 2019 almost felt like a team that was still in transition from, you know, the 2011-15 era, which was one of the greatest international, the prolonged runs from an international side that we've ever seen. And it felt like 2019 was... St- caught between the two stools almost. But then to me and all um, COVID asterisks applied, it doesn't feel like they've forged that new identity yet that we probably would have expected them to do by this point. Yeah, uh, I I remember reading uh, the book called The Jersey, which sort of looks into the All Blacks identity and what is kind of expected of them. And the New Zealand public just will not accept a run of results like this. And I think especially, you know, to to delve a wee bit deeper, you know, for for a lot of communities in New Zealand, how the All Blacks are performing is central to kind of the mood in general around the community. Like people really put a lot of stock in how the international rugby team is doing. And 
I think that's something that you wouldn't get anywhere else in the world where you're literally staking your your own sort of emotional state on how a team is performing. But that's how much the All Blacks means and how much it's ingrained in the New Zealand community. And I think just the run of results that Foster has been on, and we, we've already seen signs of, of a di- just disappointment in how the All Blacks have been performing. Honestly, I think he might be in danger if they don't win this series. I, I know so much of it is all pushed towards the World Cup. And I think if, if Ian Foster led the All Blacks to World Cup glory in a year's time, all would be forgiven and he would be lauded as a national hero. But just the, how, how sort of average the last few years have been under his reign, if they weren't to win two of three games at home against Ireland, I think he might be in severe danger of losing his job, even a year out from a World Cup. Well, I think like Razi Erasmus has probably put the fear into an awful lot of international coaches because I think he has done away with this idea that um, you need a good crack at the set, you know, what is referred to as the cycle because he has shown that you can instigate a reversal of fortunes quickly in time for a World Cup to turn things around from what in that instance was a historic nadir. Now, New Zealand aren't at that level yet. Like, it sounds like we're dangerously close to talking up like Ireland winning the series, but like, I think it is worth noting that, like, you know, the boogies still have the most likely outcome as a New Zealand whitewash, and the All Blacks are 12 point favorites for Saturday. So, don't, don't get me don't get me wrong, like, I still think the All Blacks are favorites here, but like, to me, that only furthers my point that if they don't win this test series then he's in danger of losing his job because they are favourites. They are rightly favourites. And while I don't think it would be a disaster for New Zealand if Ireland took one of the three games, because I think the two sides are evenly enough matched, but I think if if they lost the Test Series, I think there's got to be questions. Because you, even looking at the age profile of the all-black side, you know, the, they've got... Two new debutants, so sorry, three new debutants in the back line who are under the age of 25. And in the pack, they don't have any uncapped players under the age of 25. And in fact, if I just do a quick tally here while I'm looking at the squad, their entire pack bar four are over 25 years old. You know, there's not really that new blood that you would expect to be coming in from New Zealand where, you know, it just seems like they're constantly rotating in these guys who are going to be cornerstones of the team for years to come. It just doesn't seem like they're doing that quite so much. And you even saw whenever the squad was announced, you know, some people were really wondering, well, where's so-and-so? Where's this guy? Where's that guy? You know, guys like Brad Weber being named in the Maoris instead of in the main squad was one that really caught people unawares. And I know that, they're trying to bring in uh, Falai Fakatava as kind of one of those young up-and-coming guys. But it, it just seems like the direction with the All Blacks has just been a little bit lost. But again, look, still still a very, very quality squad. You know, we're, 
we are very much at danger here of talking them down and saying this is a team on the precipitous decline here. But equally, I think you do have to say it for what it is. This is not the All Blacks team that whitewashed Ireland the last time they played there. They're not the All Blacks team that put 60 points on them without reply the last time that Ireland were there. And they are a team that is reeling from some poor results in the Northern Hemisphere as well. So I think there's definitely not that mystique around New Zealand anymore, but equally, they're still going to be a dangerous team to face. Yeah, I think for all those reasons that we've outlined, I actually think it's obviously we're looking at it from an Ireland perspective, but I think it's a more important series for New Zealand than it is for for Ireland. And I think we'll probably learn quite a bit about the direction of their travel going towards the World Cup in France, where let's not forget, they could well end up playing Ireland again in a quarterfinal. And I think you would almost, and again, this is famous last words territory, but I think at present, you would probably rather play them than you would France in a quarterfinal, given that it will be in France. I agree. I suppose what you're really looking at from an Irish perspective is what constitutes success, really. Oh, you read my mind with my next question. <laughs> if if we're talking if we're talking about this being the worst New Zealand team to ever pull on the black jersey, and I'm I'm over exaggerating there for a <laughs> I was second. Say, which is don't, definitely not what we're saying. But yeah, yeah, don't do not quote me on that on Twitter. That is completely out of context. But if, if we're talking about Ireland taking on an All Blacks team that isn't as good as some other All Blacks teams that have played in the past, and you can quote me on that, what would constitute success for Andy Farrell? over these next few weeks? Is it purely results-based out in New Zealand? Or would he take three losses if his team showed real signs of progress? It's interesting because I think there would be a cadre of players, and I'm thinking your Johnny Sexton's, your Peter Romani's, Keith Earls, guys that have already achieved an awful lot in an Ireland jersey. We'll see this is a real opportunity to make another piece of history having already been a part of so many of these days when you think back to ironically enough the Joe Schmidt era in terms of all those firsts that they were able to knock off during that time this will be seen as the chance for another and I think they will be really really disappointed if they don't do that conversely I think if you're a coach looking at it in the bigger picture like you could see a tour where you know, Ireland could lose three games, perhaps even five games, narrowly. But those guys that we talked about, the likes of Tom O'Toole, the likes of Craig Casey, Joey Carvery, perhaps even Kieran Frawley, if those guys all go out and shoot the lights out and look like they're going to be genuine competition for the established players in those jerseys for the next year moving towards the World Cup I think Andy Farrell will take a lot from that because he will he will know and everybody will know that essentially this is the reverse of what we had in the autumn where Ireland are now at the end of a long season in a way (laughs) probably think that he's going to benefit from the fact that Ulster and Leinster both lost you know it gave him the players an unexpected down week and it gave him the opportunity to have his whole squad in for a three-day camp. 
but make no mistake, like the players will be feeling every one of those games in the legs and every one of the two flights in 14 hours, <laughs> whatever it was to get there. So I can see how there could be positives taken from a bad tour results-wise, but I think there will be a huge percentage of the players that are there thinking, yeah, this is another chance to add something to the legacy of, I suppose you would be looking at it going back to the 2009 Grand Slam, really, of a run of unprecedented success, really, in Irish rugby, where an awful lot of those traditional monkeys on the back, if you like, none bigger than beating New Zealand, of course, have been knocked off. I suppose there is sort of those two trains of thought at the moment, which is this is a great chance to beat the All Blacks, as you say. And I, I certainly think there would be a degree of regret if Ireland come away from this tour and they feel like potentially a series win was there for the taking, especially after seeing the performances. But I think you struck on an interesting point there, which is, you know, Joey Carberry having a good series would be a massive thing for Ireland a year out from a World Cup. Tom O'Toole potentially having a great series would be a big thing for Ireland a year out from a World Cup. And certainly for a few other guys to have big series would be a big thing for Ireland a year out from a World Cup. Do you think Andy Farrell would be tempted in any way, shape or form to give Carberry a start as opposed to just deploying him from the bench or maybe Tom O'Toole a start to get these guys some big minutes and big games or is it all about the result uh, maybe not all about the result but is it you know primarily about the result yeah I get what you mean and it's actually really hard to judge because we, you know we saw this with Joe Schmidt feels like ever since we started talking about Joe Schmidt we've just been mentioning him in uh, every conversation since um, you know we saw that with Joe Schmidt in 2018 in Australia where Carberry started the first test and I think it's just such a difficult call to make because every game in a three test series is such a potential swing of momentum so say for the sake of argument you make those changes I don't see you doing that in the first test because you want to put your best foot forward and then if you win the first test, then you're starting to think like you said there, you know, could we actually win a series here, let alone win a first game on New Zealand soil? Could we actually go down here and win a series? Which was sort of what we saw or what we have seen in the past with teams going to South Africa and things like that. You know, if you win one game, all of a sudden the picture (laughs) alters massively. And then if you win the second test and you've already got the series won, you want to go for the whitewash. So, <laughs> but even, <laughs> like, even the flip side of that, like, you know, if you lose the first game or, or if you lose the first two games, you're trying to avoid the whitewash. If you lose the first game, you're trying to get things back on track in the second test. So, in such a results oriented business, even though Farrell is probably, sorry, not probably, Farrell is the safest in his job of any of those teams that are visiting um, the Southern Hemisphere teams this uh, this summer, like it's still a big call to not put out your best team 
in the hope of getting payoff for that down the line. Like we see this every year in the Six Nations, where it's like experimentation is reserved for Italy. You know, it's it's a difficult thing to do. It's something that I always say that I would like to see more of, but it's equally an awful lot easier for me saying it when it's not my job that's on the line. For Italy. <laughs> the world's experimental thing. Yeah. Um, if we finish off this chat just by asking how how do you think the tour will go? Not not what you what you think or um, how you think Ireland will approach the tour, but how do you think the tour will turn out in result? I think it will be 2-1 to New Zealand and I don't think any game will be more than two scores. Interesting. You're going even further than just giving the series outcome. Well, I just think, you know, you mentioned the 16-0 there and I was like, just thinking back to 10 years ago, like, how did you judge that tour? Because they were so close to winning one test. Could have won it if not for refereeing decisions and <laughs> also got absolutely thumped in the other two games so I suppose if you're looking at it margin of defeat probably means more historically against New Zealand than, or is worth pointing out against New Zealand more than uh, any other destination and you know that goes back I suppose even further than that when you think about like you know the series in 1992 and things like that so I just can't see, I can't see either of these teams hooking the other one. And, it, you know, even when we talk about the November game as well as Ireland played and as superior as they felt on that day, they still only won by eight. Well, in light of my recent string of correct predictions, I'm going to say Ireland win all three games by a combined score of 180 nil. Uh, <laughs> But on a, on a serious prediction... Yeah, I would whitewash is 50 to 1. I know that uh, every time you've made these outlandish predictions the last couple of weeks, I've given you the odds to let you know uh, <laughs> to let you know what's available to you. So the Ireland whitewash is 50 to 1. I'm going to put my neck out there and I'm going to say I do think Ireland will win 2-1. I don't know what order they're going to win the, the games in. I don't know if they're going to like have a shot at the whitewash or if they're going to come back from losing the first test. But I think... I think this team has just been trending the right way. I think we saw it in Six Nations. They just look like they're, they're finding a lot more sort of consistency than what they have in, in previous iterations whenever they come into summer test series. So I'm going to say that Ireland win two of the three and I think there will be dancing in the streets of Dublin. At uh, half nine in the morning. <laughs> exactly. Um, just before we go, Ulster are finding out their Champions Cup fate on Tuesday afternoon. I believe the Challenge Cup draw is at 12 o'clock and then the Champions Cup draw follows roughly around 12.25, provided there are no hold-ups or mistakes with the with the Challenge Cup draw. We know now that Ulster can get one of La Rochelle or Racing 92, and the other team they'll face will be one of Gloucester or Seal Sharks. Uh, we did have a discussion earlier about who we would like to get because we would both like to go somewhere new, uh, which is which is either Gloucester or Seal, neither of us have covered game there. And we've been to La Rochelle and Racing, but La Rochelle's a lot nicer than having to go back to the cinema in Paris. 
I would say but probably I, I, a lot easier to get to if you're thinking about it from that point of view. Absolutely. Um, I just want a nicer draw. Or I just want a nicer time to travel to. But I'll frame the question in a bit of a different way then. Which two teams do you think Ulster would rather get from a competitive perspective? Well, I think that's very important because that's what the vast majority of people who are listening to this will care about rather than my travel concerns <laughs> or your desire to go back to La Rochelle. And then... Absolutely not. If anybody wants to pay for me to go back to La Rochelle, I am open to all and every offer. Look, I mean, La Rochelle are the champions for a reason. I feel like there's a butt coming here. Well, there were fine margins sort of on their run through the knockouts, you know. Um, I still think you would probably prefer to avoid the reigning champions and play Racing, I think. But it's probably not as cut and dry as it was, say, last year when you were looking to avoid to lose as the reigning champions, you know. Like, I, I think no matter who you play there, you're playing two, or just sorry, you're playing one of two very, very good teams and teams that are going to be very difficult to beat given the profile because they're such big and powerful teams. The, the only thing I will say about La Rochelle is that they've never had to leave France in the knockouts of the Champions Cup. And we all know how badly French teams can travel in Europe. I'm not saying they didn't deserve to win the Champions Cup. You put yourself in the position to be drawn against the teams you're drawn against and then you beat who you play in the playoffs. That's I'm not arguing that. But the fact that they didn't have to leave France, I think... Sort of, sort of makes you forget that their draw through the playoffs was not overly difficult in terms of travel. Out of La Rochelle, La Rochelle and Racing in the group stages, which team do I think would travel better to Ravenhill? As in, who would be the tougher team to face in the home game? I think that would be Racing. I think Racing would be a harder team to play in Belfast. And I think both La Rochelle and Racing are going to be more difficult or are, are both going to be difficult away. So I think you'd probably rather have La Rochelle in the group stages purely because they'll give you the... And it's not an easy game by any stretch of the imagination. It's still going to be very tough. But I think of the two options, they're going to give you the easier home game. So that's why I think actually you would probably want La Rochelle because... Racing are one of the few teams who do target the Champions Cup year in, year out. So they'll probably come a little bit more geared up to try and win in Belfast as opposed to La Rochelle. Okay, it's an interesting point. You've uh, you've maybe convinced me that you're better not playing a team that will be completely all in on the Champions Cup like Racing will be because they have not won it, whereas La Rochelle and I have won it. It's, uh, it's interesting. And... In terms of Gloucester against Sale, I think you would rather play Sale purely because Sale's seeding is the product of a team that they won't be next season. I, that's the case for everybody. Obviously, players change at the end of the year, but like Sale have lost Faf de Klerk. They've lost Lou Diager. You know, even McGinty going to, uh, to the Bears is a blow. Like They do have good players coming in, obviously, like George Ford. Johnny Hill, you know, the players that are coming in aren't slouches, but the upheaval of the salary cap in England has probably been 
maybe most keenly felt at Sale, where there's going to be huge upheaval. And especially if you play them, you know, you're going to be playing them in December and January. So still relatively early in the season. And I suppose the team probably won't have bedded in really by December, especially when you consider, you know, the November internationals and stuff. So I think that you'd probably rather play Sale. I would agree with that. I I know we've said it in the pub before. I, I would like to go back to Gloucester and experience Gloucester playing Ulster from a work perspective. But yeah, I, I think from a competitive perspective, I think absolutely it's going to be sale. There's it's it's got to be sale that they would want. Also, uh, surely like Ulster just never want to go uh, back to Gloucester after the absolute disaster that was <laughs> that 2020 game. Uh, you can follow that draw. I believe it is on the EPCR website. And uh, I'm assuming, as most things are now, it's going to be on YouTube or Twitter or something like that. You can find it anywhere on the internet, probably. Just a little bit of news before we go. Ulster have announced two friendlies before the start of the new season. They will welcome the Exeter Chiefs to uh, to Ravenhill on September the 2nd, that's a Friday, Friday, September 2nd at 7pm. And then exactly a week later on Friday, September 9th, they are away to Glasgow Warriors, who are still without a head coach. It can't be the only one thing, surely the season can't be coming around that quick. Well, the very late finish to this season has just thrown everything out of whack. So, Yeah, the combination of the late finish and the need for the early start to finish early next season for the World Cup, like, it seems obvious, but that just doesn't really work that well. But that is all the time that we have for this week. Jonathan, thank you for joining me at Late Notice for this special bonus pod, I'm going to call it. <laughs> not a problem, not a problem. And thank you very much to everyone for listening. We will be back over the course of the Ireland tour to discuss how the Ulster boys are getting on and, of course, how Ireland in general are getting on. But until we are back, we hope you stay safe and enjoy your rugby wherever you watch it. And we'll catch you again on the Ulster Rugby Roundup next time. 